String Theory, Psychological Diversity, and Punching a Nazi. All that and more on this week's episode of Ask Science Mike. You've got questions, he's got answers. Even though we may not understand, he'll talk anyway. You've got problems, he won't solve them. But he'll talk and talk and talk until he's blue in the face. Science, faith, and life. Welcome to Ask Science Mike, the weekly podcast where I answer your questions about science, faith, and life. I'm your host, Mike McCarg, known across the internet as Science Mike, which is kind of strange for a non-scientist. Anyway, we've got lots of new events to talk about, lots of great questions to answer, and a little bit of chaos related to my move. So what do you say? Let's do a show and get it started. I am so all over the place. Honestly, it's crazy. My stuff is in boxes. People keep coming into my house to look at it because they're thinking about buying it. (laughs) And I'm trying to find a place to rent in the Los Angeles area that has decent public schools and allows pets and doesn't cost a trillion dollars a month. So... (laughs) I'm going to do my best to have a show that is much more cohesive and approachable than my life is right now. (laughs) Really wild. I want to start with uh, an exciting announcement. As as you know, if you listen to the show, I've been working on this uh, United Kingdom and Republic of Ireland tour to support Finding God in the Waves over there, my book, which is available, by the way, in the UK. And I've got a new date to announce. October the 11th, we'll be doing an Ask Science Mike live in London. So that's October 11th. That's a Wednesday, Ask Science Mike live, right in the heart of London. And tickets are available now for that. So you can get tickets now. We will be uh, getting tickets available in the next week, week and a half, hopefully, for the other stops uh, on the Ask Science Mike live UK tour. I'll also be doing uh, the Rubicon Conference in Dublin on October 21st. So that's two things right now. If you want to catch up with me over in that part of the world, those tickets are on sale now. Both are going to be really great. SIS Mike Live, as you know, is this in a live format. The Rubicon Conference is uh, a more in-depth experience and features people other than just me. Um, So... (laughs) Uh, I've heard it's fantastic, and I'm really looking forward to attending myself. Of course, September 5th, we'll be in Los Angeles with the Liturgist Gathering, October 6th in Boston for the Liturgist Gathering, and October 27th in Seattle for the Liturgist Gathering. More information on that at theliturgistgathering.com. Or if you'd like to learn about any of these events, just go to asksciencemike.com, click on the menu, and then tap Events on your phone or just click the events tab on your computer and you can learn about all of these and uh, get tickets to come see me at an event. I'd love to see you. And now let's answer some questions. Hi, Mike. 
I recently became a patron and I really like engaging with your other listeners on the site, which is cool. Um, And I also really enjoy your work, especially as I wasn't naturally interested in science in school. My question is about brain development and social development in babies and toddlers. My daughter is 21 months old and her favorite thing to do at the moment is to watch a montage from the original Superman films to the Superman score. My husband is very proud. But I'm a little concerned. These images aren't awful, but they do show things like a falling helicopter and people's scared reactions before Superman flies in. What impact would this have on my daughter's brain and social development? Will she be scared by the images or will she learn to be scared from our reactions? Will they give her a darker view of the world and she'll grow up with some deep-seated belief that helicopters might fall out of the sky? Um, Or is she only taking in the bright colours of Superman and the exciting theme tune? Thank you very much. This is a great question. I have a lot of interest in something I researched a lot uh, when I first became a parent myself. And uh, I'll warn you, when studying the effects of media consumption on childhood development, you run into a ball of spaghetti. It's, <laughs> it's very hard to parse things apart. It's very difficult to follow any one thread. There's competing ideas, competing theories, competing models. And uh, as is so often the case in the social sciences, uh, models can be very situational. We don't have like a unified model of human cognition or anything like that. You know, I will say like in brief, if you take anything away from the answer, you know, watching images in media for children and adults is much more likely to desensitize us than to increase our sensitivity to something. So it's more likely, specifically helicopters falling out of the sky, um, that repeat exposure is going to uh, make that seem like less of a deal, less of an important event to your child than to make her afraid that helicopters are going to fall from the sky unless the first viewing or an early viewing traumatizes her and then subsequent viewings reinforce that traumatic experience or as you say the context of people around her lets her know that this should be something feared but if you think about how we consume media we tend to be in a relaxed environment we tend to be in very comfy chairs nice and safe and we watch things happen on screen and nothing bad ever happens we're never hurt physically we're we're never uh, in danger we can get a little thrill but if you watch a lot of movies in a row you know, your brain kind of kind of cooks out and uh, the intensity has gone because we get desensitized. So in terms of what the research says and more in depth, it, it I think you can make a case that media affects children a great deal. There's lots of studies to support that. Uh, so let's let's say, for example, uh, studies have shown violent media consumption in childhood is an excellent predictor for aggression in adults, also an excellent predictor for being desensitized to violence both on screen and in the real world. People are, um, in many cases, less moved or affected by real-world violence if they consumed a lot of violent media growing up. And this effect is amplified uh, when you have a same-sex on-screen hero. So if it's a male child and you have male heroes on screen who are aggressive, uh, the effect is amplified. The the same would be true if you had a a violent uh, 
female uh, protagonist, uh, then the effect will be more pronounced for uh, a girl watching that program. And this may contribute to one of the reasons boys are more aggressive than girls. I wouldn't want to say solely contributes, but it could be a contributing factor for why we see increased aggression among boys compared to girls because media typifies and normalizes that. And it dramatically shapes, media dramatically shapes, our perception of gender roles, what we see on screen, the kind of commentary that happens between men and women, plays a factor in how people view gender roles for the rest of their lives. It affects how people see race, the the relationship between different races, what's appropriate between different races, and especially how someone views their own racial identity. Uh, if If we tease this out, it turns out that when you adjust for other factors... Media only has a net positive effect on self-esteem for white males. It has a modest uh, negative effect for white females and a more pronounced negative effect, especially for African-American girls and boys. Uh, They aren't typically presented as protagonists. They appear less often on screen. When they do appear, they speak much less often and in less flattering contexts. And this this affects how children see the world and how children see themselves. So media absolutely has an effect on children, including very young children. And this is an effect that will remain for their entire lives. Now, this is not an inescapable edict. This is more, we're talking influence and probabilities here. Like when I was a kid, I played violent video games all the time. I watched a ton of violent movies, especially horror movies. But I'm horrified by real world violence, and I always have been. I was an empathetic kid. I'm an empathetic adult. Physical pain uh, of others affects me profoundly. Because it's the interaction between our knowledge structures, our personality, our behavioral scripts, our beliefs, our goals our instincts, all these factors come together to influence our behavior and indeed to shape our worldview. Media does not do it alone. It is merely one factor. And how significant a factor it is will vary from person to person. And one of the reasons it will vary is the amount of time spent consuming media. People in strong family environments, people with other entertainment options, people with Uh, large social spheres or large social webs or deep connections in social webs will spend more time doing other things. And so the effect of media will be lessened on them. I like to use this metaphor. Think about stacking quarters. Okay. And let's say that a behavior is a stack of quarters that falls. So if you stack three quarters on top of each other, it's a very stable But if you stack 200 quarters on top of each other, it's not very stable at all. And you can imagine that your instincts stack a few quarters for you. Some people, their genetic instinctual predisposition towards aggression is very low, and other people it's higher. And when you consume violent media, if you have a small stack of quarters, well, you can consume lots and lots of media without your quarters ever falling down. But if you have a greater predisposition media may have a more dramatic effect. And what if the table is shaking? What if what if life circumstances are difficult? These messages played 
to you via media may have a more pronounced effect when you're stressed or tired or angry or experiencing trauma. All these things come together. So what does that mean for us as parents? What does that mean for us as societies? Well, I think one, we need to be intentional about the kinds of media that our children consumes. Not not in censorship, but if we're going to spend time viewing media, why not view media that embodies the kind of world we'd like to live in, the kind of experiences we'd like our children to have. Why not watch media where men and women play equal roles, perhaps even where women are protagonists? Why not consume media where the casting is representative of the population of the United States of America or whatever country you may live in? Why not intentionally consume media that reflects the world you hope will be one day. And ultimately, I think it's important to reduce the effect of media on how our children develop by limiting the overall consumption of screen-based media. I was very strict about the minutes per day of screen time my children got when they were very young. I'm much more lenient now in their preteen years, although maybe too lenient. But I I strongly encouraged my children to spend more time playing with other children, to spend more time in conversation with us, in conversation with others, doing things in the physical world, which have been consistently shown in studies to have dramatic benefits on their learning, their problem solving, their emotional health. I'm not against video games. My kids play video games. I'm not against television or movies. My children watch both but I am about intentionally curating a balanced media landscape and having a strong emphasis on real-world social interactions and traditional play for my children's well-being. And hopefully that will make them well-rounded people who can be aware of the way media influences them as adults and therefore make better media decisions. Our next question came in via email, and it reads, Hi Mike, I'm a former Christian turned atheist. I know you hear this a lot, but I want to thank you for your work. It was instrumental in helping me through my deconversion. I was watching a program on National Geographic called Year Million. The show covered a wide range of topics on what the earth and humanity could look like in the year 1 million AD or something like that. One of the topics discussed was the possibility of custom DNA alteration in the human species, the idea that we could genetically engineer our babies before they were born and weed out genes that produce cancer and other diseases, including psychological disorders like depression. However, the program cautioned against the psychological portion of this, citing the potential problems with the lack of psychological diversity. For example, if there was no depression, may we not be able to fully relate with happiness in a meaningful and fulfilling way. Anyway, my question is about psychological diversity and how it branches into religion and belief. In short, do we as a human species need diversity of religion and belief or non-belief to thrive? Do theists need atheists or vice versa. Thanks for your time. 
Love the show. It's a timely question, I think, uh, because precise gene editing is likely coming sooner than later. Technologies like CRISPR potentially will dramatically, dramatically reduce the time, expense, and complexity of altering DNA sequences. And we'll see that first treating genetic disorders, cancer, and disease. That's what the first applications for this technology will be. But once that's happening, there's absolutely no reason you couldn't use gene editing technology to filter out depression or even pick your child's eye color. But let's remember, when we said something like depression, that's an umbrella term that includes a lot of distinct concepts like clinical depression or situational depression, which are are dramatically different in both their uh, origin and treatment and prognosis. So let's let's I want because of the inherent complexity discussing depression, let me take another attribute that's maybe easier for us to wrap our heads around, but is is definitely a component of psychological vers- diversity. What if we could decide if our children would be extroverts or introverts before they were born? What if we could do that? But after all, we live in an extrovert's world. Easy social skills are valued. The ability to speak publicly is valued. Being outgoing is valued. Networking is an essential component of commerce in our societies. It is an extrovert world, especially in the West. But we're learning more and more the profound value that introverts bring to society at large and families in particular. So even though you may imagine if you could choose to make your child an extrovert or an introvert, many, many, many people would choose extroverted children, we'd lose something, wouldn't we? I'm way more towards the extrovert end of the spectrum than the introverted end. Although the brain injury has certainly helped me understand introverts a lot better. But think about this. Living full-time with an introvert has taught me a lot about how they function in the world. They pay more attention They listen, they focus, and they think deeply. Now, my wife's ability to perceive detail compared to mine is dramatic, and I I don't ascribe that to gender differences based on the science I've seen and based on my own personal experiences. That seems to be more related to introversion and extroversion. I know a lot of extroverted women who are uh, similarly big picture focused as I am, and I know a lot of introverted men who are as focused and as detail oriented as my wife. By the way, I'm not saying that extroverts are shallow. In terms of how their brains function, extroverts literally just need more sensory stimuli for their brains to achieve a state of arousal and attention, whereas introverts' brains are overwhelmed by that level of sensory stimulus. And this plays out in like the the classic image of an introvert canceling a social date and being excited about it. The home is quieter. There's less stimulus. The brain is therefore able to achieve a more optimal state of stimulus to focus and to feel at peace. Whereas extroverts in the same situation, they feel cut off from the world, isolated, lonely, bored, even depressed. Unless I'm exhausted, a hotel room alone is a dungeon to me. (laughs) I can't stand it when my family travels 
and I'm home by myself. I need stimulation, right? Now, by the way, one last thing, most people are actually ambiverts. Introversion, extroversion is a spectrum, and most people are closer to the middle than the poles, and very few people are at the far ends of either spectrum. Either way, my point is, what will we lose if instead of a roughly even mix of extroverts and introverts, we had 80% or 90% or 95% of children who were born were extroverts? Would society be better off? I think we would all say no. No, of course not. Of course society would not be better off. In the same way that 95% introversion among birth would be bad for society, bad for culture, bad for the world. It turns out, yes, psychological diversity uh, is a component of a healthy society. Now let's think about belief. Atheists and theists. Atheists people who lack a belief in any god or gods, theists who believe in a specific god. That is not the entire pie of belief, by the way. But for this example, let's stick with those two. Maybe in a truly secular society, there would be no such thing as atheists at all. Atheists don't like being defined in opposition to something. We just don't have a word for, you know, I don't believe in God that works without the assumption of God in the first place. I think this is the reason you're seeing more and more people simply identify as non-religious or non-spiritual or free-thinking, some term other than atheist that isn't premised on a polarity or a disagreement. What if we just flipped a switch and got rid of all knowledge of religions? Let's imagine that for a moment. Well, I think research is pretty clear what would happen. We'd make new religions. We have a really strong inclination homo sapiens, our species, to see the divine in the world. Oxford's done studies on this, and you know we've got lots of sociological data that tells us you have a, a, an increased likelihood of children of atheist parents to be not just religious, but fundamentalists. We seek out religion. We seek out spirituality as a species. But what if we just, uh, what if we just use gene editing? If we could isolate the genetic markers that led to these biases? What if we could just do that? Or what if we could just screen out the kind of biases that lead to doubt and skepticism? What if we could get rid of that prefrontal bias, prefrontal cortex bias? I think that would be horrific for society. How would we know in the process of switching off those genes what other effects that would have on a human's behavior and belief over time. I am not a slippery slope argument kind of person. Uh, I think that's a, a logical fallacy. But I do think we should trend very carefully with gene editing. You know, we're still reeling from the unintended consequences of digital social media in politics and culture worldwide. You would think it'd be a great thing to allow free communication with anyone across the globe at the speed of light. That should be wonderful. But it turns out the algorithms that drive these systems, the the tools we use to search through this torrent, this fire hose of information directed at us, amplify our cognitive biases. We've used all this technology to feed ourselves things we like to hear more. And in doing so, caused a really, really dangerous, destructive political environment. It seems like in some ways we're 
moving backwards instead of moving forwards in the world, in America, in Europe. Because sometimes the biases of the human organism produce incredibly powerful, unforeseen consequences when force amplified through our technologies. And my concern is that with the best intentions for our children and the best intention for the species, if we start having designer babies whose psychology or at least psychological inclinations and predispositions we determine through intent instead of through recombination, we could introduce self-reinforcing, self-amplifying effects in our society that we cannot foresee when we begin the process. Now, Maybe I'm a genetic Luddite. And I want to be clear. I am all for gene editing technologies to treat disease. And I understand it will be difficult to delineate the difference between treating disease and tailoring a child. I understand that that is a difficult and some would even argue arbitrary line. I'm just saying we should tread carefully. The system (laughs) that produces the diversity of human life has worked incredibly well for a couple of billion years. (laughs) It's done a good job. There's life everywhere. We've had these crazy extinction events, six of them in the Earth's history, and we keep having life. Why? Because the way uh, DNA replicates and recombines, it works very well. I just want to be careful that we don't mess it up the same way we seem to be messing up person-to-person communication with social media. (laughs) i tell you what, a really weird resource for this one. Instead of sending you to an article on the web, uh, I'm going to link you to a novel, a giant, if it fell off the shelf, it would crack your skull novel called Seven Eves, which is uh, about basically humanity almost dying out and having to use genetic technology to bring itself back. If you want to explore this topic more deeply, it could be interesting food for thought. Hey Mike, Patrick here. My question is in regards to the label scientific theory. Recently, I finished reading Brian Greene's The Elegant Universe. From what I gathered from the difficult topics covered in the book, And based on my admittedly infantile understanding of said topics, I don't see how string theory can be properly labeled a scientific theory in the sense that something like evolution is an accepted theory. How has physics that we don't currently have the ability to observe, measure, and experiment on been granted the coveted label of theory? Shouldn't it rather be called a hypothesis? Since people I've known will often use the it's only a theory line in their misunderstanding of the evidence for evolution. I struggle with the idea of explaining the idea of string theory to people in fear that it might bolster their misplaced idea of what a scientific theory is. Thanks so much for all you do. It means a lot to this once Christian, most days agnostic, some days mystic listener. Bye. This is a fantastic question. This is going to tie up a lot of loose ends that have been happening in the show lately. And hopefully uh, if you've sent me an email related to refuting a metaphor I've used on the program, I hope this can help you understand why, okay? So listen up, everybody. The way humans learn is by incorporating 
new insights into familiar metaphors and images. So think about when, you know, the, the Apollo astronauts first headed toward the moon and Apollo 13 had so much trouble and they're trying to help people visualize, well, how far away is the moon? And so people would use metaphors of objects people know, a baseball, a basketball. Distances, therefore, people could understand. When trying to describe the precise angle with which Apollo 13 and other Apollo capsules would have to use to re-enter the Earth's atmosphere, they would describe the, the size of this opening as at scale, the width of a sheet of paper. Okay? Uh, things like this. Familiar metaphors. That's how humans learn. And I think you could argue it's the only way people learn. We build these metaphor ladders, okay? And this is why we teach school children that electrons orbit around the nucleus of an atom like a moon orbits around a planet. It's a familiar metaphor. It evokes an image in the mind. It creates a model that's useful for instruction. Even though it's not true, electrons don't orbit the nucleus of an atom at all. They exist in probabilistic clouds in the space of an atom and sometimes beyond it. But do you see what I, you see what I just did? I just lost a third of the listeners of this program <laughs> by saying that. What do you mean beyond the atom? Yeah, well, statistically, you know, an electron in one of your atoms might be in the sun for a moment. That's totally within the models as a possibility. You see what I mean? You can't start there. You've got to start with something familiar because this this idea of an electron orbiting a nucleus, that leads you to chemistry. You can understand the periodic table with an orbital model of atoms. So even though the model is not entirely correct, it is useful. And then as you continue to learn, you climb this ladder of metaphors. Now that you have some knowledge of protons, neutrons, and electrons and their relationship, we can give you a more sophisticated and more nuanced metaphor that has more uses in describing the world and making predictions. The more you learn accurate metaphors, the more you discover the shortcoming of the metaphor you knew before, the previous metaphor. And this happens all the time. It happens in science. It happens in religion. Heck, it happens when you get to know a new friend. You thought they were just like this person, but it turns out they're different in a lot of ways as you get to know them better. So, what does this have to do with string theory and the word theory in science? Well, we tell people that science has theories, theories with a capital T. And the way that the word theory is used in science is not the same as popular or common usages. In science, a theory is a body of well-supported work with evidence that makes predictions about the natural world and has been verified. That's a theory. The theory of relativity that Einstein produced is an excellent example 
of a scientific theory. The theory of evolution via natural selection is a great example of such a theory. Capital T. Here's the problem. Science is not a monolithic entity. There are many disciplines in science and many different language norms. And language in science has the same problems it has everywhere else. It is imprecise. For example, the standard model of physics is much <laughs> is developed far beyond a model. We still call it the standard model. That's how the people who originally worked on the standard model described it. That's how it was popularized. And language is sticky, right? The Big Bang is a terrible, terrible name for the Big Bang. There was no bang. A bang bangs into something. A firecracker bangs into the air around it. The beginning of the universe as we know it in that in Big Bang cosmology was an expansion of a singularity. The bang's a really terrible metaphor, but it's stuck. So in physics, a theory can just be a mathematical model that explains something. It doesn't even have to have experimental support. Now, we couldn't call it the string hypothesis, by the way, because a hypothesis is a single testable claim. And string theory is a body of work that includes hypotheses and and different mathematical models and now mathematical models that link distinct mathematical models into larger models like M-theory. And the reason we can't say string theory is like the theory of relativity is because so far, even though string theory does make predictions we can test, the tests haven't come out well. Or the predictions made by string theory require such incredibly high energy levels that humanity can't yet test them. It becomes a dead end. So what do we do? Do we stop developing the mathematical models? Or do we continue and wait for a day when we can? What do we do if we never can? This is a big debate in the sciences. But what just happened by saying, wait a second, string theory isn't a theory like the theory of evolution is, you just demonstrated that you've grown beyond the old metaphor. And this comes to the heart of how I answer questions on Ask Science Mike. I listen to your question and then to the best of my ability, offer a metaphor (laughs) at the right level, on the right rung of the ladder of metaphors to take you forward in your understanding of the sciences without overwhelming or confusing you. By the way, this is why some questions land really well with you and some don't. When someone is at a similar level as you are, then I'm going to use metaphors more appropriate. And sometimes people ask questions and it's very clear they understand more metaphors than I do on the show. And that's usually when I apologize and go, I don't know. (laughs) Because I'm not a guru. I'm a guy who reads a lot. This, that's what's happening. You're brushing up against the problems with human language. And, and the best thing you can do now is let go of the assumption, if you hold it, that science is a single entity with a normative use of language across the enterprise. Science is a methodology for learning. Science includes more than the scientific method. Science 
is got lots of dreaming and lots of hoping and interactions between axiomatic models and observational and experimental models and dead ends and, oh, wait, what just happened? That's a huge part of science. What just happened? We have a grant. We're doing research. That effect wasn't expected. Where did that come from? And in the, the process, you've just got people trying to describe something something that no one else has described before to others. So they, they pick some words, and sometimes they stick, and sometimes their semantics weren't correct. Or their semantics were correct at first, but as their findings grow, they transcend the original language. But it doesn't matter. This is the label everyone has stuck to that phenomenon. It's fascinating. We actually did an episode about this on the Liturgist podcast called The Asymptotic Fidelity of Words. The Asymptotic Fidelity of Words. I'll have a link in the show notes on AskScienceMike.com to talk about the ways that language is squishy and imprecise, which is in many ways antithetical to what science tries to do, to describe the world with ever-increasing accuracy, which is tough using weird tools like words. Our last question came in via email, and it reads, Hey, Science Mike, I have a question about violence and disruption in politics. Many on the left were overjoyed to see a video of a man punching Richard Spencer in the face because he holds aberrant views. By the way, this is not in the letter. If you don't know who Richard Spencer is, he's a prominent leader of the alt-right and... uh, well, basically a Nazi, <laughs> I mean, by, by his own admission. Back to the letter. Recently, Charles Murray was shouted down at Middlebury College in Vermont by students who found some of his views to be racist. He was invited to speak, but was not able to do so due to disruptive protesting. This protesting escalated into violence when Allison Stenger, a Middlebury professor, was injured in the incident. My question is the following. Is violence or disruption ever an acceptable response to someone whose views you disagree with, no matter how reprehensible? Also, what effect does violence and protesting have when it comes to promoting one's own viewpoint? Is punching someone in the face an effective means of getting someone to agree with you? Or is it merely done as a way of showing solidarity with those who have been hurt by the viewpoints the punched person has expressed? Is there a point at which words and arguments about ideas become futile and brash acts and demonstrations become necessary? What does science have to say about the effectiveness of discussion and argument versus violence and protest when it comes to convincing someone to change their views? I realize that was more than one question, so you can ignore all but the first and last questions as rhetorical. I'd like your personal opinion for the first question if you'd like to express it, and the best scientific response you can come up with the last one. Thanks so much for taking the time out to do this show. It has been great listening through all of the episodes. Michael. Well, Michael, uh, (laughs) it's the first time someone's prescribed in what manner I should answer which questions they sent in. So impressive. And given my terrible memory, I won't be able to remember what you said about how to answer them. So (laughs) here we go. 
Uh, first question, is violence or disruption ever an acceptable response to someone whose views you disagree with, no matter how reprehensible? In my opinion, absolutely. Absolutely. What do you mean by violence? Do you mean strangling them? Stabbing them? Shooting them? Do you mean shoving them? Do you mean physically restraining them? It's a continuum of violence. So the more extreme the violence, the more lasting the cause on the person in question, the more reticent I would be to see that violence employed. But I can't get worked up that somebody punched a neo-Nazi, an alt-right white supremacist. You know why? Because the effects of that punch are so insignificant compared to the effect of the viewpoint. We're seeing a frightening trend in the data that as the percentage of the population who is white declines, the attitudes toward race become more resentful and more aggressive. The effects on people's lives by the words of someone like Richard Spencer and the way that gets propagated into national dialogue and into policy is far more profound than a punch. It's not even close. So even if I had some philosophical objection to any and all violence against ideas, which frankly I don't know if I do or not, In terms of, as a pragmatist, the impact this is having on people, people getting punched who are Nazis is nowhere near as big a deal as the implicit assumptions of white supremacy in our society towards people of color. It's nowhere near the impact that chauvinistic masculinity has on women, economically, physically, emotionally, the effects that punching a neo-Nazi has on the world are such an insignificant rounding error compared to our views on sexuality and the way they affect trans people and gay people and lesbians and bisexual people and asexual people and queer people of all stripes is not comparable in the least And believe me, Michael, your question is welcomed on this program. I'm happy that you asked it. Genuinely happy that you asked it. But in terms of the amount of time we've spent in the media and in popular attention dissecting punching a Nazi is so overblown compared to the time we spent examining and combating white supremacy or patriarchy, or sexuality. We should talk about those things much more. We should do more about that than we do protests on college campuses about differing views, which I don't think the protest should turn violent there. But I welcome the protest. I welcome the protest. The thing is, the marginalized folks of the world have had enough. They have had Enough. They are tired of having people in power, mainly white straight men, dictate the terms of dialogue, 
dictate the next steps, dictating what feelings they may have in response to a system that holds them down, that I'm surprised more Richard Spencers don't get punched. I'm surprised more campuses don't erupt in protest. Folks have had enough. And I would be happy to discuss punching neo-Nazis and the effects of affirmative action and uh, the tone minority people have when discussing issues of race when those issues rise to prominence in our society. They have not. Let's talk about why affirmative action is racist against white people once we have economic racial equality in America. I'm telling you, the day, the day you have similar household wealth and household income, when you have similar incarceration rates, similar prosecution rates, similar rates of state violence, when the metrics on paper actually say we're equal, I would love to have a conversation about affirmative action. I'd love to have these conversations about how white people could be marginalized, but today it's not happening. It's a hypothetical distraction to the horrible reality that our world is inhospitable to most of the humans on it because of our structures in our society. White people aren't most of the world population. We just consume most of the stuff. Now, that's how I feel. What's effective? Ask Martin Luther King how effective protest is. Oh, you can't. You can't. Someone killed him. But has anyone in recent American history done more to change the status quo? Anyone? Martin Luther King has been sanitized by our history. He was not complacent. (laughs) He was active. He ruffled feathers. And in the time he was living, by the way, he was much less popular in America than he is now. Protest works. So do safe conversations. There's no one solution to changing people's views. People are at different stations. And they respond to people in different ways. Protest is necessary. And indeed, I think punching Nazis is necessary to continue an awareness that things have got to change. That the way things are is unacceptable. But on a, a one-on-one basis, I think you can make a scientific case that, yeah, absolutely, sitting down, listening, showing empathy honoring people's dignity, and then relating to them the stories of people whose lives are affected by their beliefs and actions is very effective in changing beliefs over time as well. I've, I've talked about that at length on this program, how to change people's minds over time, how to influence them. Tell better stories. Tell better stories, and to do that, you have to maintain relationships with people. This falls on those who have the societal position and the emotional energy to do so. No one else can talk to my family 
about white supremacy as well as I can. Nobody can talk to my friends about how asexual people are marginalized than I can. So I do that work. And you should too. If if you have a visceral reaction to violence in protest, first ask yourself why. How much of that might be related to some of your own uh, cultural norms. It is a very culturally white thing to say, hey, look, you never, ever, ever, ever hit. You never yell. Anger's bad. Order's important. And that's not all bad, by the way. It's not all bad. But if you if you have that reaction, congratulations. That's not how you drive change. <laughs> if you're asking a question about the science of how to peaceably change people's minds, I think you just found your role in the process to be a patient listener involved in long relationships to help expose your friends and family and acquaintances to the humanity of people of all races and all genders and gender identities and all sexual orientations. That's how you do it. And science says that's a great approach. Science also says protests work. I think free speech is essential to a healthy society, and I don't think it's in danger even from this, this you know movement among young people on the left today. And here's how I know. Here's how I know. If we were moving faster towards equality, I bet you wouldn't see these same protests. I, I, I don't know if you've noticed the protests on college campuses have increased in intensity since Donald Trump was elected president because in the eyes of many marginalized people and in their experiences, America is moving backwards in its movement towards liberty and justice for all. I think punching a Nazi was calling out a failure to keep that promise of liberty and justice for all. Well, I got really preachy there at the end of the show. <laughs> Sorry about that. Uh, I don't know. I do know. I do know. I'm, I'm, I'm ready for a, a different world. Not for my children, for everyone's children. Ready for a different world. So thanks for listening to another episode of Ask Science Mike. If you'd like to get me on a preachy rant, you can totally do that by going to Ask Science Mike. Dot com scrolling down to the bottom of the page and right there you'll see you can send a voicemail or an email to get a question on the program uh, that question will be reviewed by my good man Andrew Galucky who picks the, the, sh- the questions that make it to our poll that's voted on by the patrons the people who support the show financially actually pick the questions that are on the show every week. If you'd like to join them, go to AskScienceMike.com. Just click that Patreon button. You can learn more about what it's like to throw me a buck a month or five bucks a month to keep this show going. And I believe me, I appreciate everyone who does that. Of course, you can go to AskScienceMike.com. There'll be show notes where you can find more resources related to questions that have been asked on the program. And by the way, the program sounds so good and so lovely because Greg Nordine is our producer and sound designer whose work I am always grateful for. Of course, Jeff Bodiford wrote that amazing theme song. 
And uh, hey, if you want music produced, he's incredible at it. You can connect to Andrew and Greg and Jeb on AskScienceMike.com as well. Thanks for listening, everybody, and I can't wait to talk to you next week.